You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Presbyterian, a CREC church in Cochrane, Alberta. We invite you to visit our website at covenantpresbyterian.ca or contact us via email at covenantcochrane at gmail.com. We pray that you are blessed by the message. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 16. And it reads, But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So as we continue on from last week, discipline and disciple come from the same root word in Latin, which means to learn. Discipline is primarily about learning. As we touched on last week, when church discipline is brought up today, it is only thought of, or for the most part, I would say it's, it's thought of in more of a corrective sense, but it's not really taken in an instructive sense, which is to our shame. To be instructed or taught something is to be helpful. It's to be admonished. It is something that we are all to love. Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 20 states, Listen to advice and accept discipline, and at the end you will be counted among the wise. Who doesn't want to be counted among the wise? Conversely, Proverbs 15 and verse 5 states, A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. To despise something is to treat it with contempt, to discard it as being worthless, to hate it. When we roll our eyes at our parents, not that I ever did that because I was a good child, but when we roll our eyes at our parents who are trying to keep us on the straight and narrow path is really to despise their counsel. It's to hate it. Conversely, those who seek out or honor their parents' instruction and correction is called prudent. Now, what does that mean? It's kind of an old-fashioned word, prudent. The Hebrew term here means to become wise or crafty, to become wise or crafty, sensible, or even cunning. Who doesn't want to be known as sensible? We see this contrast being played out throughout, throughout the Psalms and throughout the Proverbs, making it crystal clear that instruction in the Lord is wise, while taking advice from, fool, uh, from fools is foolish. Makes sense, right? It's destructive. That's the problem, is taking advice from fools ends in destruction, And by foolish, the Bible doesn't mean that you have some lack of intelligence. That's the important part. It doesn't mean that you lack intelligence, but you have a lack of character. It's a moral charge. It's a moral accusation. The fool is morally deficient. So why all the emphasis on discipline? You could say that without discipline, one's life is turned into chaos. You've heard that before. Christ or chaos. Right? God or absurdity. 
Have you seen the home that lacks discipline? I'm sure we all have. Have you seen a church that lacks discipline? Unfortunately, I'm sure we all have. Have you seen businesses that lack discipline? Have you seen individuals that lack discipline? What are the main characteristics of those people or of those organizations? Chaos. It seems like chaos. There's often calamity. There's often strife. There's heartbreak. There's brokenness. The list goes on and on. Discipline is something that is essential to an orderly life. An orderly life is a peaceful life. An orderly, peaceful life is a godly life. God does not approve of chaos. God does not approve of chaos. God does not approve of disorder. God does not honor that which is destructive and chaotic. Paul's letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 shows us how chaotic and undisciplined the Corinthian church was and Paul's instruction was specific to bringing order to the church. Order was important. Chaos brought disunity among the saints and it was abhorred by God. Disunity is caused by chaos and is abhorred by God. Much of practical theology is that of learning and discipline. Learning and discipline in the Lord. Last week we covered the first stage of church discipline. That of what we might call one-on-one encounters. This week we're going to cover stage two. But before we do, we need to look at an important aspect of life that starts actually before even stage one starts. And that is self-discipline. Self-discipline. I said last week that most of church discipline cases can be solved in stage one. The fact of the matter is most church discipline gets solved before stage one through self-discipline. Galatians 5 and verse 23 states, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. The term self-control here is the same as self-discipline. It's the same term. If one practices self-control, they are showing themselves as having the fruit of the Spirit. When we fail to practice self-control, we begin down the road of Matthew 18 where others get involved. Let's think about, about this just for a moment. Almost any problem that would require another to come alongside you and give you correction begins with a, with a lack of self-control, right? Let's just take a few things. Alcoholic, alcoholism. You lacked self-control and allows, allowed yourself to be enslaved to it. It started there. If you're lazy, you lacked self-discipline to commit yourself to spending your time wisely and worthily, working hard for the Lord, right? Take overeating or gluttony. It's caused by a lack of self-control to stop eating when you knew you had enough. 
I often hear people get frustrated how their walk with the Lord seems to be going, and it's not going very well. But it's funny, when you start probing a little bit, when you start asking important questions about their habits of prayer life, their Bible study, their studying, and the like, it becomes very clear that time has not been set aside for those things. And instead, other things have taken their place. They have lacked the self-control needed to grow in godliness. Godliness is not something that happens automatically. Believe it or not, saints, you must work on your godliness. You have to be conscientious about it, right? A person who has self-control is one that others look to for guidance and counsel. Generally speaking, we don't try to have people in church leadership, whether that's elders or deacons. One of the qualifications is self-control must be one of them, right? There are mature ones in the congregation that these are the ones we look to for guidance or the ones that, that don't get swept away with every whim and emotion, right? But are seen as steady They're sure of themselves. They are the ones that understand the importance of self-discipline and tend to be the ones others turn to when their own lives seem to be on a slippery slope or feels like things are upside down. Generally speaking, unless we have, and this is the, the funny part, is that we have seen people that are unhealthy that go to other unhealthy people for advice and you think, why in the world would they do that? probably caused by serious emotional issues and they don't actually want to deal with the issues, right? But generally, we don't turn to those type that display chaos and disorder in their lives for help. They're not helpful, right? They don't exhibit the kind of life that we want for ourselves. So we don't turn to drunkards to ask for help about our alcohol issues, right? Makes perfect sense. We don't ask someone that's gone bankrupt for financial advice. We don't ask for wisdom from those that don't display any working knowledge of common sense. Right? We don't do those things. We don't ask for theological advice from known heretics or screaming liberals. That would be silly. We turn to those that have what we're looking for. Self-control, disciplined, peace, harmony, order, joy, and other fruits of the Spirit. Those that don't practice those things are the ones that end up in a Matthew 18 situation. So last week we looked at the one-on-one stage, and it's important to note at this point that Matthew 18 is within a certain context. That's very important, and I don't think I hit on that last week. Matthew 18 does not cover every and all legal proceedings, okay? It doesn't. We must not fall into the trap that every situation must woodenly, woodenly be followed in a Matthew 18 approach. When we look at the context, we see that this situation is one in which one brother or sister has sinned against another brother or sister. Okay, that's the context and it's important to know that. We're not talking about tax evasion here, right? We saw that it was to be done with those that are brothers or sisters in the church. We saw that it was to be done in stage one. It was to be done in private. We saw that it was to be done with a heart of reconciliation. 
It was to be done lovingly, humbly, and with grace and truth. We are to correct those that have sinned, meaning they have broken God's law in some manner against another. We also covered the manner in which we do it. You must be able to point to the problem or law from a biblical perspective. Remember, we don't discipline annoyances. Those are the areas where we get to practice patience and grace towards one another. And we must be able to articulate it clearly. We don't approach people with issues that we cannot articulate. So, the question is, is what leads us to stage two? And here it is. Let's read. Verse 16. But if he does not listen. We'll start there. But if he does not listen. If we remember from verse 15, the idea is that we want our brother or sister to listen. To acknowledge their error or sin. To repent of it and be fully restored with one another in the body as a whole. We move on to the next stage when and only when it is clear that they are not listening. Now there could be a variety of reasons why they aren't listening. I thought of three just off the top of my head. Number one is they don't understand the issue or the charge against them. They don't get it. If you cannot point to the issue and show biblically where the issue lies, then it only leads to confusion for the person that you're trying to approach. But pastor... You might say, what if I know what they're doing is wrong, but I can't find it in the Bible? You're going to run into issues that aren't spelled out specifically in the Bible. You won't find, thou shalt not play Xbox all day in the Bible. You won't find that. However, every issue has a principle behind it. Depending on the situation, the matter of playing video games all day could be a number of different issues. You see, if it's a household rule, let's say, that children should only play for a maximum of one hour per day, I'm looking at the boys over here, I don't know what your rule is, but let's say there's one hour a day where you're allowed to play Xbox, and you go over that, you are doing something called breaking the fifth commandment. You are not honoring your mother and your father, right? Pretty clear, right? What if it's one of the parents playing video games all day? Then what do you do? Well, then you might turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Right? You might go that route. There are any number of things that you can use in principle to make your point. Generally, people know full well that what they're doing is wrong. But you must be able to articulate it in such a way that they will understand what it is you're concerned about or what the sin against them was, right? In this, if this is the case, try again. If this is the case, study the issue. If this is the case, there's nothing wrong with asking for help. Hey, this situation happened. What would you call that? Help me out. What what would you call that situation? Just don't use any names. See if there's another way of articulating the issue. So that's number one. They don't understand the issue or the charge. Second, it could be that they disagree with the charge. They disagree. There are times when issues are brought forward that there's a sharp disagreement with the interpretation of what the Bible says or the understanding of biblical morals or principles or scruples. 
An example here would that be, uh, just off the top of your head, you can come up with an easy one between church brothers and sisters, is the issue of the use of alcohol. There are those that feel very strongly that any alcohol consumption whatsoever amounts to sin. And then there are those that understand the Bible to say that actually alcohol is a gift from God, but shouldn't be abused, that you are not to be inebriated. So as long as you're using alcohol in a godly way, that alcohol is a gift from God. So those are two very different understandings, right? We have, an, uh, we have a biblical understanding and interpretation that will require further assistance, And this situation most likely requires help from outside. You'll need assistance with that. And finally, the last one I thought of was maybe they just don't care. Right? Maybe they just don't care. They've done what they've done. They have justified it in their own minds. They've made excuses for their actions, which they feel make that what they've done is okay and that they're willing to live with it. They don't care. They have, in their minds, they have nothing to repent of. And this, unfortunately, is most troublesome. As justified sin is a serious temptation for all of us. How do we know that? We all crave, each and every one of us, we all crave to be justified. Even when we do wrong. And we know that just by reading the Bible. Over and over and over again in Scripture, we see examples of this. Adam tried blaming God and Eve for the sin of eating the forbidden fruit. If you didn't give me this woman who made me do it, we wouldn't be in this mess. Not smart, right? Moses, when he came down from the mountain and found the people partying around the golden calf, what did Aaron say to him? Do you remember? It's almost laughable. Right? But brother, you know what these people are like. Look at them. I had no choice. Samuel, when confronting King Saul for not carrying out the destruction of the people, said what? I've done what I was told to do. I follow God's instructions. The matter of fact was, plainly, he did not. But he tried justifying himself by declaring that he did what the Lord told him to do. Essentially, when he did that, he blamed God for his failure to communicate better. Not smart. This too, this situation where someone decides that they care not for the discipline, they care not for your opinion, they don't feel as if they've done anything wrong, this too will require the assistance of others. Which takes us to the last bit of, of uh, verse 16, where it says, Take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Once it has been established that there is a roadblock to reconciliation between two of you, the next stage is to bring in others. Now there's a couple of very important notes here. The first one is that there is no place in Scripture where confidentiality of sin is espoused, right? There's no place in Scripture where hiding sin is okay. This is the practice of professionals, and I use that term loosely. 
and TV shows where we get drawn into the idea that there is sort of this doctor-patient or lawyer-client privilege. In the Bible, there is no such thing. In fact, as church discipline moves along, more and more people get involved. Once again, we see the stark contrast between how the world does things and how the church is to do things. This doesn't mean that when you come to someone that they will in turn gossip, right? This is a very serious issue in and of itself. But it is important to note that issues in the church have the potential to be made known to all if it's not dealt with. If sin is not dealt with, more and more people get involved. More and more people will know. This is a scary place for sinners in the church to land. But if we understand the gospel correctly, if we understand the church correctly, it is the most logical action there is. If we are covering our sin, if we are hiding our sin, we are inevitably damaging the body. We are damaging the church. We are damaging our witness to a lost and dying world. And this makes perfect sense when there's strife between brothers and sisters in the church. That seems obvious to most people, I would think. But what do we do about private sins? I couldn't let this go without dealing with private sins. And we've heard this argument before. How does my private sin, although they'll never use that word, how does my private sin hurt others? This sort of objection comes up all the time and demonstrates a lack of understanding of a couple of things. First and foremost, how sin works. They're not taking sin seriously, anyone who can use that line. How does my personal private sin affect anybody else? You'd understand how sin works. And secondly, how we as a society, especially inside the church, how sin affects society or how sin affects the church. So let me give you an example. When it comes to sexual sin, the argument put forward to society, and you've heard this one, right? You've heard this before. What does it harm society what happens between two people in the bedroom? You ever hear that? Surely you have. This is a number one argument put forward during the sexual revolution. What do two people in the walls of the bedroom have to do with the rest of society? At the time, due to our society's ignorance of biblical categories and foundations, and we might say that continues even to this day, we collectively, as a church and as a society, we had no answer. The question is, where are we now? Where are we now? You will celebrate sexual perversion or you're going to be charged with a hate crime. That's where we're at. Right? How did we get here? What happened to two people in the bedroom? Yet here we are. Sin is bad for the individual committing it. Let's start there. Sin is bad for the individual committing it. If that person is part of the church, being a living stone of a spiritual house of the Lord, and that person is living in sin, what happens to the rest of the house? Paul tells us, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. 
bad company ruins good morals. To allow sin to fester, to allow it to grow, it spreads like gangrene. Children, if you don't know what gangrene is, it's not good. It requires surgery. Parts start to turn dead and will kill you eventually if you're not careful. It will infect the rest of the body. Your individual sin is never as private as you think it is. When we try covering up our sin, when, when we're trying to hide our sin from God, we're not even hiding it from others. We need to realize that. For eventually sin grows to the point where it becomes obvious to everyone. Sin starts small, but it never stays small. Unless you kill it. Right? Sin destroys. If we try covering our sin, God in the end will uncover it. If we cover up our sin, God in judgment will uncover the sin. First John. Right? He will do so in judgment. But, and here's the good, but if we are open and honest, coming back to humility, if we are humble and broken about our shortcomings, if we are humble and broken about our sin, we uncover our sin before God. We uncover it. And the best news ever is He, in turn, will take it and cover it with the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son. And it is forgiven. You cover it, He will uncover it in judgment. You're not getting away with anything. If you uncover it before God, God will cover it. And you're forgiven. It's amazing. Now the witnesses being spoken about here are not witnesses to the actions. This is the important part. One of many important parts. The witnesses spoken about here are not witnesses to the actions. This is a sin between one another. And they didn't necessarily see it, right? There are many that want to interpret this way, but logically it doesn't make any sense. Why would you confront a brother privately about his sin and then go about asking others if they've seen the same thing Hey, uh, I noticed this about uh, so-and-so. Have you seen the same thing? That's gossip. That's slander. And it's not what it's talking about. Right? This would be gossip. The correct understanding of Matthew 18 in this instance is witnesses being wise counsel to hear both sides of the issue. That's what, that's what the witnesses are. The witnesses should not have any prior knowledge of the issue until they hear it firsthand from both parties. In other words, if you require assistance in dealing with a person you believe is in sin, you need to approach a couple of people with as little details as possible, including the name of the person you are confronting, until such time that those people can confirm that they will participate. Yes, I'll help you with this difficult situation. I'm in. How can I help? If they can't participate, they should know nothing of the case, including who is even involved. Right? You offer as few details as possible until such time that they are committed. The person or persons being brought in should be respected members or even leaders of the church. 
not buddies of the person bringing the charge. This is not an event to gang up on a person that's being charged with something, but more of an inquiry into the issues. It's a preliminary inquiry, really. Both parties should be made aware of the meeting, and both parties should be prepared to have a complete understanding of what's going to be talked about. This is not an opportunity to gang up on anyone. And it says that every charge may be established by two or three witnesses. This is not another confrontation or discussion, but simply a matter of addition. Once both sides of the issue have had their chance to present their case, the witnesses brought in, whether one or two, should be able at that point to render a verdict in favor of one or the other. Maybe there's sometimes both. So, But to make things just cut and dry in this case, let's assume that one side was right and the other side was indeed in need of repentance. What should happen is that whichever side the verdict lands on, there is a call to repentance. There is a call to repentance by the witnesses and the party that brought the matter forth. The hope, of course, is that this call to repentance is heeded. That's what we're shooting for. And that the other two parties can leave in unity and grace with one another. That the offending party is forgiven. So there's a call to repentance. Now you have two or three witnesses that are now calling that person to repentance. The idea is that the offending party will repent. And that the other party offers forgiveness. And will rally around said person in love and compassion. At this stage, the only people that should know are the people that are directly involved. Still small, right? It grew from two to maybe four. But that's all that should know, right? Now, there's always what-ifs. There are always going to be hiccups. I've yet to see a situation that doesn't have some hiccups or other. There are times that discipline happens not in a perfect linear fashion. As was stated earlier, we cannot be wooden in our interpretation of each and every issue. And we can look at Paul in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 who charged the man with sexual sin. He did so by letter. <laughs> he went right to stage 4. Right off the bat. I declare that man, if this is true, kick him out. I'm kicking him out. Right? What if a charge is brought forward by a pastor? This would be more of a stage three charge right off the bat. Is this biblical? The answer is yes. Not everything is always going to be cut and dry the way we like it. Sometimes this kind of stuff can get messy rather quickly. The question we need to keep in the forefront is our motivation and doing things as biblically as possible. What is our motivation? What should be our motivation? It is godliness and reconciliation. Godliness and reconciliation. That is the goal. That is the motivation. And as we move forward in the process, we will see more and more opportunity for things to be not as linear and straightforward as we would like. It's our job as Christians to have the best of intentions. Okay? We actually are supposed to give one another the benefit of the doubt. We don't jump on people first and then find out later that, oh, we didn't have all the information maybe we should have had. Find out more information. Give your brother or sister the benefit of the doubt. 
and to have a sincere love for one another that looks to restore and build up one another, not a cold judicial methodology for solving issues. It says in Scripture, we are to cover up in love. We are to cover up a number of things, right? You don't have to take offense to everything, so don't. Love covers that up, right? So in conclusion, as you can see, God has set before us a manner in which discipline is to be done between individuals in the church. It appears to be the exact opposite of how the world does it, which is, pretty clear, which is a pretty clear indication that God is the one that has indeed instituted it. One of the greatest difficulties that I have, uh, that I have witnessed in discipline is that of knowing what to do and why you're doing it. We approach one another with love and grace. We approach one another in kindness and truth in order to prevent them falling into further sin. The world would say, what business is that of yours, what others do? We hear that all the time. Or what business does the church have to settle issues between brothers? We've run into that very issue here. And what a sad state of affairs that is. Right? What the world doesn't understand is that as a member of the body of Christ, we are accountable to one another. We're accountable to one another. As covenant members of a local church body, we are bound to look out for the well-being of one another. We are to encourage one another unto godliness. We are to lift one another. We are to love one another. We are to share one another's burdens. We are to share in the joy of one another. We do all these things in covenant with one another. We are all part of the same body. And what happens to one part of the body affects every other part of the body. Eventually, there is no unimportant parts of the body. There is no such thing in the church body as a vestigial member. One that's kind of there, but it doesn't do anything. Right? No such thing. We all have a role to play. We all have relations with one another. Now, is it always smooth sailing? No. But this is why God has given us the method of solving disputes and issues among us. I'd also like to offer a word of caution. I'm a firm believer that if we approach one another the way we should, with the right demeanor and motive, 90% of all issues would end at stage one. Of the 10% that don't get resolved, 9 out of 10 of those should be resolved at stage two. If you think about it, if you have two or three witnesses that have just heard the whole story, they have listened diligently to both sides of the issue, and they have come to the conclusion regarding the matter, for the side that is called to repentance, to, at that point, not acquiesce to the request, is, in all likelihood, in serious, serious error, and is now being obstinate. They are now being prideful. And that doesn't mean necessarily that they are, but the likelihood of that is very, very high. For any issue to go beyond stage two is usually a matter of hard-heartedness. It's a matter of pride. 
Extreme caution should be used when pushing the matter on to stage three, which we're going to cover in a couple weeks. As with any matter, once it has been resolved, the body should be in unity and in harmony once more. There should be no biblical reason for hard feelings. There should be no biblical reason for bitterness to take root and no reason for leaving the church. To do so would be a clear indication that reconciliation has not truly taken place and that a root of bitterness and anger has taken root. In this regard, church discipline has failed, as the truest and most important reason for discipline is always, always, always reconciliation. We must always remember God sent His Son to die upon the cross so that God could reconcile with who? His friends? No, His enemies. God sent His Son so that the world who are His enemies can be reconciled. If God has truly loved us so much when we were his enemies, shouldn't it be his people that likewise show the same kind of love for one another? Doesn't that logically make sense? To act in any manner or intent other than what God has commanded of us is to show worldliness. It's to show ungodliness in our thoughts and in our actions. And this is an affront to Jesus And his church. Will we move with compassion for one another? Will we be willing to reconcile with those in whom we are having disagreement? Will we be a reflection of the perfect light of the world who so graciously reconciled with us? To answer in the negative is to reflect the nature of of another father, namely our natural father, Satan himself. But I'll end with this encouraging scripture from the book of Hebrews. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. I am most confident in you, Covenant Presbyterian Church, that you will take this sermon to heart and apply it to your lives. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for the lesson of church discipline and its goal of reconciliation. May we be a people known to forgive one another our shortcomings, to be humble, to be showing humility between one another that love for one another that you have called, that we will be a light to the world because they too will look at us and they will see the love that we have for one another. Help us to not be thick-skinned. Sorry, help us not be thin-skinned. Help us to not have hard-heartedness and help us to not be a prideful people. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.